day, and I'm glad that you're here. We're in a series called Count on It. It's uh, from the book of 1 John. Remember, John is uh, the beloved apostle, one of the 12, the youngest one of the 12, the one that lived the longest, the only one that didn't die a martyr's death, wrote the gospel of John and received the revelation, the last book of the Bible. But this particular letter or sermon or whatever it is that he wrote uh, is about what God wants us to know. There's a lot of uncertainties in this life. There's a lot of things we don't know. There's a lot of things we can't count on. And, And a lot of things we think we can count on, all of a sudden they're not there anymore. But but God says there are some things you can know about me and your relationship with me. And so that's what we're looking at. First week, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the truth about forgiveness. We, we misunderstand that sometimes. But here, one statement about the, the truth about forgiveness is that God forgives us totally, completely, and without reservation. We have trouble forgiving ourselves a lot of times. But God forgives us completely and it's all gone. Sometimes there's some things we have to deal with, but God loves us, and he loves us in an absolute way. His goal is that we learn to walk with him in the light and to become like him in the process. And we're going to start talking about becoming like him this morning. Last week, we looked at the what we call the love connection. What we know is connected to what we do. And if what we know doesn't cause us to do something, then we don't know the right stuff, at least not in the right way. But here's what we know. We know that if we, uh, we know that we know him if we obey him. Don't always obey him, but when we obey him, it helps us to know that we know him. Obeying him means that we walk as Jesus walked. We become like him. Walking as Jesus walked means that we love others. And so the truth about forgiveness and the love connection, and today we're going to get into the subject of the process of transformation, the process of, uh, of becoming like Jesus that's an ongoing thing in our lives. And, and the more I got into this, I just decided I'm going to have to take next week and this week talking about this particular subject because you, you wouldn't want to stay around for as long as it was getting. So we shortened it up just a little bit. We'll look at part A this week and part B next week. But here's what John tells us along this line. We can know for certain that we're children of God. We're going to look at that. You can know for sure that you're a child of God, that you have the gift of eternal life, and that you're going to spend eternity with him. We can know that for certain. And we can know for certain that we have the gift of eternal life. But becoming like Jesus in a practical way is an ongoing, lifelong process, something that we work on every day of our lives, something we need God's help with every morning when we get up and uh, every night when we go to bed. So Jesus tells us that that, uh, another thing we learn from John, by the way, is that God's children are manifested by our actions, and, and that's what we want to do. We want people to know that we belong to God. It doesn't have anything to do with the, with the steeple that's on top of the roof or wearing a coat or, or carrying a Bible around in your hand. We want people to be able to see Jesus in us. And I just uh, quickly this morning, I want to give you three things involved in the process. As we read through, we're going to go back into 1 John chapter 2, and then we're going to get into 1 John chapter 3, but three things about the process of, of transformation. And the first one is this kind of an unusual thing. Uh, John is writing this book, this sermon, this letter 
to believers, to Christians, to followers of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you why that's important, and it'll play a bigger part next week, but, but he's not writing to heathens. Uh, and, and while there's some, some false teachers around, he's not writing to them. He writes about them, but he doesn't write to them. But he's writing to followers of Christ, and there's uh, three verses in chapter 2 read like this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. John says, I am writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. That's who I'm writing to. I'm writing to you. You already belong to God. You are God's children and your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. Then in verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I'm writing to you who are young in the faith because you've won your battle with the evil one. Verse 14 I have written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I have written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. And the second half of that verse, I have written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts. You have won a battle with the evil one. Now, why is it important that we know that John is writing to believers? More about that next week, but it makes a difference how you interpret things, who to whom is a person writing. Uh, just give you a little illustration, then we'll move on. Suppose uh, somebody asked you to write a book for young couples contemplating marriage. Now, I've never written a book, but I have talked to a lot of young couples contemplating marriage. Uh, what would you say to them, to a young couple contemplating marriage? Maybe you talk to them about compatibility. Are you sure you want to marry this person? Hasn't happened often, but I have had certain couples together and said to them, you two don't need to get married. Just run as fast as you can in the opposite direction. This is not for you. Don't uh, get married. Uh, you might talk to them about communication, listening to each other. You might talk to them about, hey, what does your family think about this? What do your friends think about this? Maybe you might listen to them. They might have some wisdom for you. So let's say you're, you're, you've been asked to write this book, and then the, the publisher comes back to you and he says, you know, we've changed our minds. Really, we don't need a book for couples getting ready to get married. We find there's a greater uh, a need for couples uh, contemplating divorce, people that are already married and contemplating divorce, and, and we find, feel that they get some bad advice. Uh, from their family and their friends. And so we want you to write that book. Well, now it's all changed. The, the stuff you wrote the first time was true, but it just doesn't apply uh, anymore. Uh, and so when you get to, uh, uh, is, are you compatible? Well, hey, it's a little late really for asking that question, are you compatible? I mean, didn't you promise for better, for worse, richer, poorer, sickness, health, till death parts us? So it's kind of a little late. Now, the, 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 now it becomes, how can we work this situation out? In spite of all the problems that exist, if both of you want to work on it, how can we do a better job? I will tell you, love can be rebuilt. It is possible. It can be redone. It just is not easy. Uh, now, for young couples, if everybody's telling them uh, you need to get you don't need to get married, you don't get, need to get married, they might need to listen. But once you're already married, you know, the woman's friends are probably telling her, you need to dump that guy. And the man's friends are probably telling him, you need to dump that woman. And so sometimes the counselor has to say, don't listen to your friends and don't listen to your family in that situation. See what I'm talking about? You give kind of opposite advice based on what the situation is. 
keep that in mind for next week. Different people in different situations need to hear different advice. And John is writing to Christians, to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to people who are really trying to follow God. Now, let's move on to the next two things, which are a little bit more about the process of transformation. The second thing I want to show you from 1 John chapter 2 is that transformation begins with a new birth. John introduced the subject of transformation. not transportation, transformation. I'll get it right, right? Transformation. Should you remember that, right? Because I couldn't say the word correctly. John introduced the subject of transformation, becoming more like Christ at the end of chapter two. That's what it means to be a Christian. The word Christian means follower of Christ. It means little Christ. It means like Christ. And John's writing about that. So last couple of verses in 1 John chapter two, verse 28, he writes this. And now, little children, children of God, that's who he's talking about. He's not right to little kids, but you're a little child, and I'm a little child. John's writing. John's 90-something years old. He's writing this. And now, little children, abide in him. Live in him. Remain in him. Continue him. Consider that he's with you all the time. Uh, uh, Consider him in every decision that you make and everything that you do. That's what it means to abide in him. We're not just talking about believing in him now. We're talking about, uh, about living with Christ on a daily basis. Abide in him so that when he appears, when he comes back again and he's coming back, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you want to be what Jesus wants you to be and what you want to be, really, abide in him. Then when he returns, you'll have no reason to be ashamed, but you will proudly welcome his return. Verse 29 says this. If you know that he is righteous, that Jesus is righteous, or God is righteous, and we do, right? I mean, that's the definition of righteousness or rightness. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. We're going to be looking at that phrase, born of him. But he says, you know that God is righteous. So if you're following God, you got to be as righteous as you possibly can be. It has nothing to do with this is how this is people these people know God and these people don't know God. It's rather an assertion that when we see a person who's really living for God, you can be sure that that person is a child of God. John is speaking of true godly righteousness here, not just doing a good thing here or there. By the way, John knew that Christians can walk in the darkness. Just because you do bad things doesn't mean you don't belong to God. You probably thought something you shouldn't have thought since you got out of bed this morning, you know. So John knew that was possible. First John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So John is not talking about you got to be perfect in order to belong to God at all. But he's just saying when you see somebody and they're really living for God, you can be sure that person belongs to God. He was writing, like this, next statement here. He was writing about the way one can we must have, be having trouble moving from one slide to the next. He was writing about the way one can see the new birth in the actions of others. But let's get back to that born of God statement. If you know that he's righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of God. How does one become a child of somebody else? Two ways, right? Number one, you get born into that family by those parents. Number two, you get adopted. Yeah, 
And scripture uses both of those terms, being born into God's family and being adopted into God's family, uh, as far as with reference to Christians. And we're not going to talk so much about adoption, but in John's gospel, chapter 3, you know, John chapter 3, that's the for God so loved the world chapter, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with this Jewish guy named Nicodemus. And here's what he said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. We, we, we talked about being born of God, and he uses this term born again. That means born anew. It means born from above. It means born differently than you were before. If you want to be a part of God's family, you must be born spiritually into that family in the same way that you were born physically into your own family. Born again, you hear that a lot of times, born from above, spiritual rebirth. Uh, it takes place at a point in your time, just like your physical birth took place at a point in time. Another word for that, by the way, I don't use these words a lot, and maybe I need to use them more, but another term used in the Bible for becoming a Christian is the word saved. Have you heard that word saved? That word can be used physically or spiritually. Uh, give you an example of how it was used physically in the Bible. You know, one of the things that Jesus did was walk on water, right? He did that a couple times in scripture. And so one time his followers are on this boat and they're going across the Sea of Galilee, the Lake Gennesaret, and, and a storm came up and, and they were scared and Jesus comes walking across the water toward them. And that impetuous guy named Peter was on board the boat and Peter said, Lord, if that's really you, I want to come out there too. I want to come out, walk on the water with you. And he said, come on. And Peter gets out and he's walking on the water in a storm. And all of a sudden he takes his eyes on Jesus, off Jesus and he looks around and he thinks to himself, people can't do this. He begins immediately to sink. And he called out to the Lord. You know what he said? He said, Lord, save me. Now he didn't have any, he didn't mean Lord, take me to heaven because he might have been headed there pretty quick, you know, if he'd gone on down. He meant, Lord, I don't want to drown. Lord, save me. And sometimes we call out to God like that. And that word save is used that way in the New Testament. But the word is also used in a spiritual way. Save me spiritually, being saved spiritually. One time the Apostle Paul and his, his missionary team were in northern Greece. And a couple of them got thrown in jail in a city called Philippi. And uh, the ruins of that city is still there, and the ruins of that jail are still there. But he's, he's thrown in jail, beaten up. He was wronged. Shouldn't have happened to him. And he and his missionary team partner were, were singing praises to God about midnight. And an angel came, shook the door, opened it up, and all those prisoners could have escaped. But they didn't. The jailer woke up out of his sleep. He thought a jailbreak had taken place. He gets ready to commit suicide because of the fact that uh, he was responsible and he would be executed if the prisoners got away. But Paul called out to him and he said, don't kill yourself. We're all still here. 
And they get into a conversation, Acts chapter 16, verse 30, and he, that is the jailer, brought them, the prisoners, out, and he said to Paul and his buddy, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Verse 31, so they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So a lot of times this word saved is used spiritually, to be saved. When Paul wrote to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 10, verse 10, he said this, for with the heart one believes uh, with relationship to righteousness or under righteousness and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. It's, an, it's a, two things going on at the same time. In the 10th, 13th verse, Romans 10, 13, Paul wrote, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Think about this. To call on the Lord means to pray in faith for salvation. To call on the Lord means to pray in faith for salvation. That's the way that a person is saved. Born again into the family of God, given the gift of eternal life. To the church in the, the Asian city of Ephesus, it's a Greek city as well, Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, for by grace, now you know what grace is, grace is something that God gives us that we don't deserve. Good stuff that we don't deserve, good things that we don't deserve. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. You exercise your faith, but that not of yourselves, that's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. All this is given to us freely by God when we call on him, confess our sins to him, and, and trust in him and ask him to take us into his family and to forgive us our sins. It's a free gift for him. It's, there's nothing we can do about it, and if we could get it or keep it, we could brag about it. But none of us have any reason to brag. Everything's given to us. And we freely accept it from God. And so transformation, this whole process of becoming like Jesus, it all begins when he helps us get started. It's called being born into the family of God. It's called being saved, getting the gift of eternal life. A lot of different terminology. But basically it starts by the prayer of faith in God. One last thing about the process. We're going to talk about the motivation for transformation. That's a preacher kind of a statement, isn't it? The motivation for almost makes the whole sermon worthwhile. Uh, why should I make these big changes in my life? Here's a definition of transformation. Transformation is a thorough or dramatic change in our form or appearance. Transformation is change, but it's big change. It's big time. It's total change. Uh, and so we're going to read the first three verses of John, 1 John chapter 3. These are my favorite verses, if it makes any difference to you, in the whole book. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John writes this, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Behold, that's kind of a Bible word, isn't it? Kind of a spiritual sounding word, a holy 
word. It means, look, see, can you believe it? Can you believe it? What manner of love, what great love God had for us. Other translations say, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. See what great love the Father has lavished us. You know, parents do that with children. They lavish them with love. See how very much the Father loves us. It kind of reminds me of that verse that we've already talked about over in John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's Jesus, the one and only. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Are you proud of your, of your heritage? You like this? This is my name. This is my dad. This is my mom. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. But tracing lineage has become very important, doesn't it? We uh, do our DNA search. Some of you have done that. Uh, everyone hopes to find a little royalty, maybe, you know, in their line, somewhere along the line. Uh, if not British royalty, then some uh, uh, Native American princess, you know. I've got a little royalty in my background. Uh, I've told you this before. My, my maternal grandfather, the only grandfather that I knew, my mother's father, was born a British citizen in the Bahamas. Uh, and we found out that his, his ancestors were pirates. They weren't very good ones. They got caught. Uh, but uh, they, were, they went to work for, for uh, the British throne and uh, were given some property because of that. Todd was doing some more research on my dad's side of the family last night, and he's sending me documents of where uh, my great-great-great-grandfather got a land grant you know, from the president uh, in 1853, a, a chunk of land in southern Illinois, which is where my dad's family was from. But, but we like to know something about our heritage. Unless you were adopted, most of us were not chosen by our parents, though. You know, well, they, they chose to let us live. They chose to raise us. They chose to lavish love on us. But for the most part, if you're born into a family, uh, your parents... Got, took what they got, right? I mean, whatever it was. It's different being born into God's family because every one of us who have been born into God's family has been chosen by God. And when that, when that adoption word is used, you know, it kind of brings that more to the forefront. But we have been chosen by God. What great love God for, has for us that we should be called children of God, if you could be a princess or a prince or heir to the throne or something of that nature, uh, what an honor it would be, but not that we should be as great as we should be called children of God. And some translations of scripture add the phrase, and we are, because that's the meaning of it. It's not just people call us that, but, and we are literally already the children of God. Grace means that we don't deserve it, but God gives it anyway. And the end of that verse First verse says, therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world can't comprehend that, but we need to understand how great God's love was that allows us to be called the children of God. And verse two says this, beloved, now, now we are the children of God. Not later, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We don't know exactly how things are going to uh, look in the future, but we know that when he's revealed, that's, that is when Jesus comes back, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The word now, 
I know you don't care about parts of speech, but, I, but it, it's called a primary particle of present time. Would you like that? In other words, it's about, I'm gonna let you know it's about now. It's not about, sometimes we use the word now in different ways, it's about now. Right now, we are the children of God. New Living Translation says, dear friends, we are already the children of God. People have an idea sometimes that we can't know for certain. Uh, if we're children of God. We get this idea that we have to die and then open one eye. And if you see an angel, but if you see fire, whew, you know, might as well close your eyes if you possibly uh, can. Uh, but that's not the way it is. John said, now, right now, we are already the children of God, already God's children. People call us God's children because we are God's children. But while we are already God's children, we're not what we will be when Jesus comes back again. The final and physical changes in us wait his return. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We don't know exactly you know, what this is gonna be like because this hasn't changed since I trusted in Christ, this body. We don't know exactly, but we know this, that when he is revealed, Jesus has revealed we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. We don't know exactly what that's gonna be like, but we have some scripture that tell us a little bit. For instance, let me read you a couple, we just read through these. First Corinthians, this is Paul's letter, first letter to the church at Corinth, which is a city in Greece. First Corinthians 15, 50. What am I saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies, what I am saying is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. Can't, you don't live forever in this body, verse 51. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. Most, most uh, translations have changed, but this is big time change, so transformed is a good word, right? We shall not all die. Some of us are gonna be alive when Jesus comes back again. Here's what's going to happen, verse 52. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have, been, have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. Those who have gone before us will be transformed at that time. We who are still alive will be transformed at that time, verse 53. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. And all the weaknesses that we have will be gone forever. And I like what Paul wrote to the Philippian, to the church at Philippi, which is northern Greece. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But we are citizens of heaven. I'm a citizen of the United States, and I'm proud of that, but bigger than that is I'm a citizen of heaven. But we're citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior, come back. And here's what's going to happen, verse 21. He will take our weak, mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power which he will bring, by which he will bring everything under his control. And so that change is going to take place and one day we're going to be exactly like him. But, but the process of transformation that will, will not 
the process of transformation that will not be completed until the time of Christ begins in us now. I'll get it out in a minute. The process of transformation be complete when we stand before Jesus one day and we get this new glorified body, but it starts right now. So let's go back, read those. I never have read the third verse. We're going to get to that, but we're going to read 1, 2, and 3. 1 John 3, 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Verse 2, Beloved, now, right now, we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In verse 3, this is the verse we haven't read yet. And everyone who has this hope, hope, you know what hope is? Hope, hope is not, well, man, I really hope that happens. But hope is the expectation that something is going to happen sincere and intense conviction that something good is going to happen. And what our hope is that Jesus is coming back again and that we'll be eternally with him and everything will be perfect. So everyone who has this hope that we just talked about in those other verses, this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Uh, now we're talking about the process of trans transformation. We who have placed our faith in Jesus are inwardly pure, just like Jesus is pure. I'm going to talk about this a little bit next week. There's something, I think, in us that is just like Jesus. We daily follow him and obey his commands so that we can show that, show that inside, uh, inside of us that's just like Jesus so that we show it on the outside. 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. I love that phrase. Behold what manner of love, what great love, what unbelievable love. Can you believe it, love? The Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And I say to you, if that's who you are, children of God, I say to you, live like it, because it's not a burden. It's a privilege. You know, it's an honor uh, to live the way that God wants us to live. And why should we do that? Because he's holding a hammer over our head? No, no. Because behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed, the Father has lavished on us. And we're called children of God. That's better than children of the king or children of anything else. We're called children of God. And so I encourage you this morning, know, uh, you know where you stand with God as far as this saved, trusting in Christ, born into the family thing is concerned. Know where you stand with God. Know that you have that relationship with him and then enjoy it. Enjoy being lavished with love by the Father and enjoy living the life that God wants you to live. Let's pray together. Father, I know that you're here with us today and I thank you for that. And we can't imagine what things are going to be like in the future, but we know what it's like right now. Not easy all the time. But help us to understand that especially when it's not easy and we live the right way and we honor you, 
That's when you're most glorified, and we thank you for those things. I ask you to bless every person who's present today. I ask you to meet the needs that they have in their lives. I ask you to draw them to you and help them to feel your presence and to know the steps you want them to take in life. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.